Hello, and a very cold welcome to the Himalayan mountains in Tibet, where we've hiked high up to the Detsen Monastery on the trail of the abominable snowmen. But will we be able to trap one? The disembodied voice you're hearing is Conrad, and joining us today we have... I'm Denise. I'm Pete. And I'm Dylan. Now, we are recording and releasing this trap one at the end of September 2022, which is exactly 55 years ago to the week that Abominable Snowman was first broadcast. But I just want to start by asking, how did you first see this story? Maybe we'll start with Dylan. I first saw this story this week on the DVD. So Amazing. That's, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's uh, It's not a very emotional journey or anything but uh it does mean that i was able to go in without too much baggage or like context getting in the way of the story and i was able to just watch the story good good how about you denise well um i watched it for the first time on my blu-ray with my other half david who is a bit older than me and could vaguely remember watching it because it was about the time of his fifth birthday when um, it was on and he had a bit of a little boy crush on Victoria Waterfield at the time. But I first knew the story from the Terence Dix novelisation, which I dug out this afternoon because I remembered that the copy that I've got, it's got some illustrations in it. And I wanted to have a look at the illustrations and see how, well, obviously they didn't influence the animators in any way whatsoever. (laughs) uh, I just wanted to have a look at Padma Samvavar and see how he was represented. And uh, so that was quite nice to dig it out and have a look through that again. That would be a really extreme version of the telesnaps, wouldn't it? If they just had, the what is it, half a dozen illustrations from the whole, yeah. one, one picture per episode with the soundtrack playing. <laughs> how about you, Pete? Um, the, the book was, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure the book was one of the first ones I got when I first became a fan at primary school because uh, I decided that Patrick Trout was my favourite doctor after seeing a couple of his repeated in nineteen in the uh, before Peter Davison's took over. Um, so yeah, I, I bought any Trout books I could find, and I remember finding that one. And then I did see I got to see episode two via a friend's brother who was an older brother who was in the Dwas and had access to pirate videotapes like in the mid eighties I think and it was it was that the sort of legend of the the screen wobbling about so much that you just you, you couldn't hear a word anyone was saying and it was like something from a hundred years ago and and it, when I think look back now it was only twenty years old it was only as old as two thousand and two is now and it, but at the time it was like a relic from an unimaginably distant past <laughs> i love it well it's funny because i like way way back in the midst of time i reviewed the vinyl version of this story for my very first proper review on a podcast with mark on on trap one and now 300 years later we have uh <laughs> i've been waiting 300 and finally we've now got the blu-ray and dvd release in a whole kind of range of formats and i always ask this on any sort of podcast i love to know like how do you what, what format do you like to buy it on? How do you like to watch it? What do you go in for? Well, recently I've been very much Team Steelbook, and uh, I watch the color animation first because I'm a philistine, <laughs> apparently, and um, then I will go and watch the black and white one, and then I will watch the extras. I've been all over the shop with this one. Um, I've watched a couple. I watched the first couple in color. Then I watched some telesnap versions. 
then I, and then I ended up watching it the last two episodes in the black and white animation. Uh, I guess I know it's going to horrify you, isn't it, Conrad? Because you want everything to be done properly and <laughs> thematically. <laughs> but yeah, I was I was just leap, leaping back and forth between the different formats. Uh, this was my first foray into the animations, actually, and okay. I did get it on the DVD, and I did watch it in black and white as God intended. <laughs> well done, my son. And, and four by three, it's the correct ratio of looking at the yes, universe. Yes. Do, do, do they have it in the widescreen? The color version. Is the color version widescreen? Yeah, the color version is widescreen, yeah, yeah. Oh, wow. But, so but... it's just, just like one third of the image that's been cut that I didn't see. It's yes, <laughs> yeah. it doesn't have extra yetis in it or anything. Uh, like yeah, it. it's it's. Uh, I watched it in four three to respect Zack Snyder's original creative vision. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, there's bits cut out of the sides. There's all sorts going on. The quarks. There's all kinds of quark invasion <laughs> happens at the side. Ah, uh, they explained where Susan went. Yeah, that's it. It was all. It all happens at the side. Well, I don't know, actually, I'm really, really curious. Actually, as this is your first time in the story and your first animation, give it to us. Give us. Give us everything. What did you? What did you make of the story? I guess. What did you make of the whole thing? Uh, well, so something being lost is no guarantee that it's good or interesting. So I was very happy to discover that this actually is very good. Uh, I, I had a good. I had a really good time with it. So. As is probably evident, I came into Doctor Who through Modern Who, and while I'm working through Classic Who now, I'm still like in the process of working through it. I'm working through uh, Davison at the moment. And uh, so far from Troughton, the other one that I had seen is The Mind Robber, which is also just like phenomenal. And uh, yeah, I, I just find that like my frame of reference for Doctor Who is the modern series so i what my big takeaway from this was was that even compared to like the davis and stuff but especially compared to anything from the modern show even the two-parters this just feels like so much slower pace but in a way that certainly in this one really works because it feels like even though it's quote-unquote just a historical uh, that's like a fairly normal adventure within the show it's just feels like it's on this much larger scale and that it's just like this whole thing slowly unfurling i i did think that like the third one specifically was just kind of the third episode i mean specifically was kind of spinning the wheels because they had to get it up to six episodes but every other episode i was like impressed by how like it's just gradually moving the pieces a bit forward again and a bit forward again that kind of truism that people say about the doctor that his superpower is taking over a room is really true here, I think. Not so much in the sense of it being something that Triton does immediately, but in the ter- in terms of like that ultimately is the win condition and it's about it's what the dramatic interplay of the whole serial is about, of Triton walking in and initially being like held captive and treated as an enemy and hostile and as an aggressor, even though he hasn't done that, as then like just gradually in like not malicious but in very slippery ways, taking control of the entire area. And like once he he has that, then he's won. But it's super interesting because like just that just the doctor presented as like not exactly a morally gray character but someone who's like quite underhanded in a way that i really enjoy yeah and it's a it's a really interesting 
version of the Doctor that we're getting from Troughton here in terms of how he ups the stakes. I think in some of his stories, there's, there's generally two ways. Like, and, and in some stories, you'll get a, any Doctor will be doing the, we're all doomed, this is the most terrible thing ever. Whereas with him, in this one, he's doing that brilliant sort of underplaying thing and going, I'm sure, I'm sure we're all going to be fine, don't worry, I think. And it's just he puts a little bit of ominousness on the end. No, of it. no, Jamie's having an idea. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, it's 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 funny, isn't it? This one I'd forgotten that it's a, it's got the, the, those three already have got in what is what is this only their third story, isn't it? Two because she only joined in Tomb properly. Yeah, the previous one, uh, Victoria and and uh, and Jamie and the Doctor are, are just working so well together as uh, and particularly that the doctor the way the doctor and is is looking after victoria because she's new whereas and and sort of get, making jokes at jamie's expense with her uh in order to, to to sort of bond but really it's a bonding thing for the three of them i just think it, it it's really comfortable it's not like they're um you know dragging jamie or give, trying to give him a hard time they just know that they can they can tease him a bit yeah. And what a series of stories for Victoria to start with. I mean, Evil of the Daleks, Tomb of the Cybermen, Abominable Blimmin' Snowmen. <laughs> you know? I mean, when else have we had three excellent stories on the trot like that? Yeah, it's phenomenal stuff. And, and in, in terms of the chemistry, they're off to an absolute flying start in this story. That TARDIS scene where he's going through the... Um, when he's when he's going through that chest, pulling out all that kind of stuff and... You know, saying, well, you know, it's so nice to see this again. What is it? Oh, I don't know, but it's really nice to see it. You know, really, really (laughs) great stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What have I come into this room for? And, you know, when uh, when, uh, Jamie pulls out the bagpipes and gets quite excited about that, and he's in trounce or very, you know, sort of. We dodged a bullet there. Dodged a bullet (laughs) there. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Really good. But also, like you're saying about him being a bit um, morally, you know, you know, the people talk about um, McCoy a lot about, as, as being a very uh, a duplicitous doctor where he's all kind of maybe fun on the on the surface, but he's very mysterious, manipulative underneath. But Troughton is really very much so as well. And quite early on, he's like, I'm just going to go for a look around. You, st- Everything's absolutely fine. You stay here and do not leave under any circumstances. <laughs> and you're like, what are you up to? Yeah. And there's the whole thing with the Gunther as well, the... Um the bell that he took from the monastery is some way into the story before you understand how it came into his possession that he didn't just nick it yeah. you know that it was given to him for safekeeping but then he didn't come back for 300 years <laughs> yeah i wonder this is the first time the doctor has ever revisited somewhere i think it is although i think in the celestial toy maker he says something there might be like we meet again or we're now in your realm or something there was maybe a little hint in that but basically yes this is the first proper one where he's coming back yeah because in the days where the tardis is a a random is basically a randomizer uh you're gonna you can't have him deciding to go to places so yeah it makes it must have must have seemed quite a a real novelty was anyone else watching it and just looking the whole time for a clue from anyone and particularly towards the end if anyone was going to say something like ah so your your face has changed doctor but um but they they don't even acknowledge that so but we can sort of do the maths and figure out it must have been Mm. win his first face or, or a prior one now yeah. Uh, but um yeah oh there's, suppose... a, there's a big finish ruth doctor spin-off to go <laughs> God. yeah uh i thought the bit with the bell was a beautiful bit of setup and payoff like you you kind of figure that the bell is going to f- be part of it but like it, it just clicks together really nicely and just in a surprising way and i think it's interesting how 
the show when it's that early on can do things like say that the doctor was here 300 years ago and it has a completely different effect because if that gets dropped in nowadays then you, you, their response is oh i guess i gotta google this yeah of course yeah of course because yeah. but here it's there wasn't really much history so you just had to take it take it in his word that it was way in his past yeah you you just know that that's Hartnell, and you know he nicked it. Like you just you can just <laughs> see him pocketing, and just going, <laughs> just pocketing it and going to the end of the story. <sighs> yes, when you, that, okay, that's now canon. In fact, we'll just we'll just clip out that bit of you doing that, and you've now been recast as Thanks. the twelfth person to play the first Doctor. <laughs> Brilliant, I'll take it. Um, it does. I, th- I think there was some, I, I don't know, some speculation or some talk or some, or somebody just sort of interpreted it as in a time of great trouble, the Doctor helped us. And I wonder if that was maybe supposed to be like a Chinese invasion or something or some kind of historical thing to do with Tibet. I don't know. I don't know my history well enough. But... I think it was from, from my cursory look at Wikipedia early today. Uh, <laughs> yeah, the, 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 there is the implication of that. And because in 67, it was all very new still since the Chinese had, had reinvaded only a few years earlier. Um, so it's like it's actually a, a topical thing to be going. You know, it's almost like having a story while a conflict has sort of come to an end to go that to then go back to that place to, to Tibet to a time a long time before that conflict. Uh, but no, and China never gets mentioned. There's, there's the, de- the debate Jamie, between Jamie and, uh, and Victoria about is, is it in uh, in India and the doctor corrects her that it's Tibet. Uh, and they don't go into the China issue, but that must be what people watch, watching it would have been thinking, because at the time there was still controversy mm-hmm. about, and the, yeah, the Dalai Lama had become famous as a, a campaigner and a human rights activist uh, cam- campaigning for Tibetan rights. Uh, and I guess that's that's a backdrop in 67 that this, that this had from, from that perspective. Uh, it's somewhere that's in, been in the news a lot lately. Um, mm. And also sort of 1967, the summer of love would have fed into the hippie sensibilities of the time. So, uh... yeah, yeah. I mean, it's not it's not giving anyone a proper introduction to the tenets of Buddhism, but it, but it's it's on the radar, isn't it? And it's reminding us that there's a bigger world out there than than just just the, uh, the, the suburbs and gardens of England getting invaded by monsters every week to, to, to go a bit further afield than that. It was actually my first uh, introduction to, I think some Buddhism, the prayer of the lotus flower. I think that was reading the book in 1983. That was, I think, the first time that I'd sort of come across it at all. I think we did comparative religion the following year in my religious studies group. But uh, yeah, it, it was new to me at the time. Yeah, me too. That's the point. Yeah, yeah. Religious studies in those days were, did you know, at school, at v, did you know, yeah. not everyone is Christian. Moving on. <laughs> was like, okay, we've, that's it. We've done the rest of the world. Uh, little insights that the world's a bigger place. But one, one nice thing it does give us is this lovely sense of place. I think that's one of the real strong things about this story. It's got a very, very strong sense of place, That both in terms of the... Um, just in just the setting and the atmosphere, um, how it comes across in the animation. It also gives us a base that can be under siege. Um, and I think that's something that came across really well with the animation. I think they did did a very nice job on it. It's, it indeed, the yeah. sets are very beautiful as well on the thing. I mean, North Wales was quite a long way for the Doctor Who crew to go in those days, wasn't it, for location shooting? And so it must have looked absolutely spectacular at the time when uh, so many stories had been studio bound and uh, you've actually got the wide open vistas and the huge valley and 
Yeah, and I think the, the black and white helps because you can't see that there's, it's August and there's lush green grass everywhere, which which you can see in some of the some of the other films. So that that comes in quite comes to the rescue, doesn't it? Yeah, and and, and so to talking about atmosphere, I think um, it's uh, it's interesting that this story this is a story with no music, and I just thought we've we've got Dylan here who's like a music composer, yeah. does soundtracks and all that kind of stuff, and yeah. the one story we get him to come along to <laughs> is a story with no music whatsoever. So you're welcome. But um, Dylan, what did you make of that? And what would sort of what does it do like having no sound or no music? So no music track on there, and so what do you think of the sort of the sound of it generally from your point of view? I can jump in here. So there are a couple of reasons that would th- these kind of decisions can be made. One is to save money, but notably, like uh, the Mind Robber, also saves money by just using like stock music from the BBC library and archives. I I think that like this being the choice that's made for a serial that's largely about like steadily building tension is a lot about just like letting that tension sit and not letting anything take away from it. Yeah. And, and and like I think the fact that there's not even any music for like the more actiony bits insofar mm. as this has action scenes uh I I think that can be partly a budget issue but I also think it, it could be like a legitimate intentional choice just to kind of like let the mood sit and let it speak for itself. Like, uh, normally even the modern series does this sometimes. Uh, Murray Gold is, like, famous for just g- g- going too hard at points. But uh, the one thing that always sticks in my mind about his approach to the show is the second last episode he did so far was The Doctor Falls. And during the famous Where I Stand, It's Where I Fall speech, Murray Gold looks at that once and immediately said, no music, just let it stand. And I think that's a good instinct to have, to know where, even for emotional scenes, it's best to just leave it. Oh, that's interesting. If, let's just say if, um, when they were making this, someone had come to you and said, okay, we want some kind of score here. You've got free reign, go nuts. Do you have any idea of how you might approach that or what you Oh my god! No, uh, no pressure. It's all right. Look, no. you don't yeah. actually. It's all right. I'm not. When you're not about to be offered this gig. It's cool. It's just a play. No, <laughs> you're kidding. That's crazy. Okay. okay. If you get this answer right, you can. <laughs> Specifically, what yeah. key and tempo, yeah. please? Yeah. Mark will fund it all. Key. It's fine. Okay. Brilliant. Well, see, you're opening up the dilemma of uh, this. Should I approach this in terms of like the musical traditions and styles that would apply to Tibet, or should I not do that? But like setting that aside, I suppose, um, you know, like if anything, I, 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 I think if I was getting paid for it, then I would do some actiony bit for the actiony scenes. Uh, like especially like the end the kind of final confrontation thing but like i think there's a lot to be said for like letting the uh, letting the stuff that's more about tension just letting that stand i don't know though yeah i mean one thing that struck me about the soundtrack for, for this is of course when they're outside the wind is blowing all the time mm-hmm. and that really does add to the atmosphere and perhaps that is in a way 
says what the musical score would have done had they had one for sure. And I also noticed when the Doctor goes into the monastery for the first time, it's completely silent, isn't it? For, you know, he knocks on the door, it eventually creaks open and he's just wandering around looking at stuff. And it's completely silent for like, this is a monastery, this is a place of peace and silence and contemplation. And this is your introduction to it. The wind is now outside. So I thought that was an interesting decision, but uh, I mean, while um, while you were talking, Dylan, about um, soundtrack decisions, I was reminded of um, the soundtrack to Chernobyl, which was an Icelandic composer who went to Chernobyl and her, the soundscape that she used was based on the ambient sound that exists in that location because there are strange when the wind blows through the remains of the structure and when the wind blows around the sarcophagus it is a very interesting thing and I suppose Tibetan bells might have been used had they decided to go the soundtrack route but uh, yeah I that sounds really interesting I love like kind of experimental production stuff like that if you haven't seen Chernobyl it is one of my favorite series of recent years (laughs) I've watched it probably about a dozen times now and uh and you've actually been there haven't you Pete yes yes uh I've I've, I've made it I was a trip to Ukraine a few years ago uh, and um for a cultural musical festival uh Eurovision Pete (laughs) yeah (laughs) and uh <laughs> but, uh, but but yeah, absolutely made a point of going of, of doing the day trip up to to, to Chernobyl and, and uh, seeing the, the abandoned towns and everything around it. It's an incredible, eerie place. Yeah. Sorry, that was a little bit off topic, but uh, thinking about something <laughs> no, that yeah. is the one that has really struck me in recent years. Yeah. Well, I think I think another nice thing that the sound does is that it, the not having music is that it does kind of throw a spotlight on a couple of bits of sound in here, which is you get that lovely chanting uh, that they've that sort of presumably stock yes. thing of the Tibetan chanting, mm. which gives it a really really nice atmosphere, yeah. um, and um, and then also you've got the voice that voice. Mm. Oh yeah, uh, our old Wolf Morris. Uh, I mean. What do we make of it in terms of, uh, you know, the greats, in terms of Doctor Who, in terms of the, you know, the Stephen Thorns and the Gabriel Wolfs? Where, where, where do we rate Wolf Morris? Yeah, I think she's right. He's really up there with them. I mean, and, and it's what gives this, I, I, I imagine when kids watched this in the 60s and were terrified of, of it, which by all accounts they were, it, it's not the Yeti costumes, bless them, uh, bouncing around like lovely big cuddly Teletubbies uh, that I mean I mean maybe I'm just doing them a disservice maybe they were quite scary but they're not but that I, I would imagine it was that voice or the two voices the flick between them both which mm. um, must have been giving the kids nightmares because it and, and it's I, I find it really hard to understand what he's saying some of the time I, I tend to watch with subtitles on anyway just out of habit uh, and uh, and I was thinking I'm not sure if I'd be able to follow this without these uh, at times but then maybe you, that's the point you're having to lean right into your little black and white tv to try and catch what he's saying and to not miss a word and I well he just... did speak very very slowly <laughs> that's true yes at least he wasn't he certainly wasn't gabbling which is something that mm. I did <laughs> yeah it sort of reminded me of the flick between when Jeffrey Beavers is just saying something normally and then when he flicks into full-on master mode it's uh, that kind of yeah. second, you know in a split second suddenly there's a very frightening presence in the room yeah 
and for me um i've just been i've just been on a, doing a re-listen lately of the audio book of the lord of the rings uh read by uh rob inglis who did the complete thing in 1990 uh and I suddenly thought, oh, this is like the scenes where Gollum is talking to himself. Gollum and Smeagol's switching between the two voices where he's all he's almost getting it together and then this other nature is coming in, in, in yeah. Gollum's case, and it's kind of the opposite here with it with it being an external force that's coming in and uh, and and taking over him. But that battle between the two voices and the way towards later on they seem to sort of just be flicking randomly, but I'm sure they're not in the earlier episodes. You can, you can see the push mm. and pull, but then towards the end, it's obviously as he's fighting it, it's all getting so jumbled up. Um, I mean, I guess this could work as a radio play with, with, you know, with a bit of, ex- a bit of exposition put in. Um, cause it's, yeah, it's interesting you say that. Cause when I reviewed the, just the vinyl, when we just had the soundtrack and nothing else, uh, Mark made the same comparison. He said, it's like, it's, it's like the Gollum, that kind of thing. And it turns mm-hmm. out that Wolf Morris, Wolf Morris actually played the Gollum in a BBC radio adaptation. So in, yeah, if it was oh, officials or something. So he oh, wow. absolutely, like Mark, it's funny. You both came independently, came to exactly yeah. the same comparison. It's absolutely bang on the money. He's like, it certainly helps that switch that he's, he's, mm. he's able to do. Um, and Wolf Morris, of course, was also in the 1957 Hammer film, The Abominable Snowmen, which Pete, you uh, told me about on the day because I went to see the, I got to see the the um, the DVD, the animation at the BFI. So we'll talk a bit about that later. But on that same day, Pete just went, oh, when you get home on Talking Pictures tonight, there's the old black and white movie of The Abominable um, Snowmen, and this is like a Nigel. Pete, you know more about this than I do. You're a Nigel Neal head. Talk, <laughs> talk us through. There are previous sort of. Um, abominable snowman versions and i kind of want to know is it possible that they could have been an influence on this yeah i think it definitely was particularly because in in this run of excellent stories we're getting when you think about it we've just had the previous story is tomb of the cybermen which is curse of the mummy's tomb the next story is the ice warriors which is thing from another world uh so i think this is very much i think this definitely comes from um the abominable snow man movie get it right which uh yeah was 57 and was a hammer remake of a bbc play uh which had gone out i think about two years earlier uh written by nigel neal who created uh, quatermass and and lots of other things um, oh i love a bit uh, of nigel neal yeah well he yes and this was like his second ever tv play or his second big one anyway it was called the creature uh, which later got remade as the movie the vulnerable snowman uh, and it, it was in the days when it, it went out live it was never recorded there's no um it was done they did two performances of it it starred peter cushing as the uh, the intrepid um explorer the, the travers character in effect and um uh and wolf morris but has the same role in um in the, the hammer movie that he has in in the doctor who version he's he's the uh the the, the lead the, the abbot or um but in um the the original so yeah so there's there's like three so there's the two original versions of it the creature was the tv play uh which was uh which got it was quite controversial because it was the second one that neil had done and he'd done 1984 a few months earlier starring peter cushing uh, and it was broadcast on a sunday and uh lots of viewers were appalled that anything so horrific would go out on a sunday because it was really it is you can get it on blu-ray now finally and it, it is really terrifying about just how evil humans can be to each other course, uh yeah. and uh, and so he decided to do this as as the follow-up um and it and it and the creature was the name of the the uh the, the tv 
Play, uh, which uh, although it, it only exists, uh, the Wikipedia page says it, it only exists in um, in the form of some things called telly snaps, which were taken <laughs> by a man called John Cura. But there's no soundtrack recording, uh, and there's no um, and the telly snaps are owned by an unknown private collector, so they're not actually public domain. You can't see them, but they are known. They are known to be out there. Um, and so then, yeah, two, two years later, Hammer remade it as the movie. Uh, they got someone else in to, to, to do the script over, as, as, as they usually did. Uh, and that was a successful movie, too. But again, start, starring Peter Cushing, I should say, both, both of these versions starred Peter Cushing as the Explorer. Uh, and, uh, and the Hammer version also added the only female character to it, who is, uh, who is his wife. Uh, and she uh, does gets the plot that Victoria gets in the Doctor Who version. She gets she goes around the monastery and sneaks into rooms where women aren't allowed and things like that. So it's I love seeing the sort of iterations of, of storytelling, um, sort of being passed from one to the other. But in the uh, in, in the in the, the Nigel Neal version, the, the Yeti is real, and it's um it, it's an alternate branch of evolution who is patiently waiting for us to destroy ourselves so that it can come forth and and take over the world when because we are doomed due to our own selfish nature yeah it's a nigel neil thing you don't get anybody playing a recorder and merrily skipping off at the end yeah i do find it really interesting in the abominable snowman just the idea behind padma samava of like i don't know how accurate this is if at all but it, it but like astral travel uh, and just that whole idea intersecting with Doctor Who in such a way that like it interacts with an intelligence and that becomes like a malign presence back down here like that's it's it's a little bit pulpy but it's also quite foreboding in in a way that you don't always get in the modern show there's just kind of like a sense of it, it really lets it sit, I think. And the fact that it's just so gradually unfolds uh, that, like, this is what's happening. And uh, it really feels like we're not just, like, being dropped into a genre of a thing. We're really being dropped into, like, a place. And, like, it doesn't explain to you what's going on. And the, the, answers, to what, the answers to the questions aren't the most obvious answers. Uh, in The Abominable Snowman, starring Peter Cushing... Was it an alien intelligence, or was it not that? Was it just no? Yeah, no. It's just it's a real yeti, and uh, there isn't there isn't the same element of of, of con- contact from another plane coming through to it, other than the the abbot is sort of connected to the yeti and, and is on a wavelength mm-hmm. with it and understands it uh, in a way that he doesn't reveal to everybody. Um, so it sort of plays with that, but it's but it's not it's not got any of the uh, yeah the the alien invasion. Uh, element that is is all new for uh, for our Doctor Who version. So it's more about nature rising up rather than an external yeah. invader coming in and manipulating the situation. That does create a different vibe, I think. Yeah, it, re- it really it really does, and it's interesting that the Great Intelligence came back. It's, it's the Great Intelligence has had five Doctor Who stories, which I find kind of incredible. So it's had this. It had the came back in the Web of Fear. Um, they were going to have a. Um, the writers did want initially particularly for the Yeti, a third uh, Yeti story planned, which was when they invaded London again. Um, but after a, an argument about quarks and dominators, which I shall leave to more people knowledgeable in that area, um, they didn't come back, and uh, and that story eventually became the invasion. But then Stephen Moffat brought back the Great Intelligence three mm-hmm. times. Dylan, this is, more your, this is probably more in your wheelhouse, in more your area. So it's the Snowmen, I think, was the first 
uh, return of the great intelligence in the new series. Uh, I, my friend Kristen McTira is currently in the process of writing a short book about series seven. Uh, and I, since I work as an editor on that, I have been lucky enough to read some early drafts of the essays and her line on this, which I enjoy, is that Richard E. Grant can play these kinds of villains in his sleep, and that is what is happening there. <laughs> oh, ouch. That's it. That's... Yeah, it's just like, yeah, I didn't like The Great Intelligence at all in Series 7. It's uh, kind of like a bland performance. It's kind of a bland villain, just kind of like taking for some... I, I, just, I was just like, oh, okay, Moffat just kind of took a guy from the classic series and kind of put him in this slot where he like needed a villain for the, the, the back half of series seven. And, you know, maybe other people got more out of it that in series seven than I did. And that if, if you did, then fair enough. But like, I thought the, the great intelligence as like a quote unquote character here was like way more interesting, just as like an unseen force that, that, that like just, just sort of, almost cosmic horror vibes, just kind of the fear of the unknown. Yeah. That's interesting. I mean, I think it's interesting because it's the way it's characterized through, I think, I think the fact that you only really hear it through Wolf Morris with that performance, I think that's, that's probably helped sells it a lot, I guess. Yeah. 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 100%. It doesn't rank as highly for me as you would expect, as you would expect from Richard E. Grant playing the big bad of a series of Doctor Who. I think Series 7 generally had a pretty bad run of, like, the the, ca- the casting directors landing good actors who then came on set and just didn't give a shit or take it seriously. These opinions are not shared by Trap One. They are just merely the <laughs> opinions of Dylan Horror. No, I'm kidding. Um, no, that's, that's, in, that's interesting to hear. Although, I, I've just realised I've got it actually wrong, because the voice was Sir Ian McKellen, I think. In, it was, wasn't it? Wasn't yes, it? yes. Um, he was merely... In the actual, gl- in the actual globe. Oh. Richard E. Gant's character, who right. he'd um, yeah. taken over when he was spoken to for the first time when he was a very little boy, just like um, Cassia in Keeper of Draken. Mm-hmm. With the milk. Oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Ian McKellen's can... good. Uh, okay. You've heard it here first. <laughs> in general, obviously, but like also. <laughs> yeah, this just... Breaking news. <laughs> breaking news. Uh, he's quite good at acting. Like, look, it's. It's it's a very limited appearance, which is obviously yeah. how they were able to get Ian McKellen, but also like it's a very particular thing that needs to be done, and you got Ian McKellen to do it, and that is obviously good. So <laughs> Yeah. And he and he, he managed to come back a couple of times in the Bells and St. John. It was uh mm-hmm. the, the great intelligence was it was in the Wi Fi, which I wasn't sure about until Mark did point out that is a that is a web of some sort. So I thought, okay, that that's that's okay, and in, in back, came back in the name of the Doctor as well, in control of the the Whisper Men again. So it, it it was a strong enough idea to bring back, and for a while, in fact, currently, the Great Intelligence holds the record as having the longest gap between its first appearance um, and re- and returning. So it has a gap of forty four years, but, but that record is about to be beaten next year, I believe. If the Celestial Toymaker is coming back, he's coming back after 57 years. Wow. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's confirmed. I'm pretty sure... Okay, we're going uh, that now? Okay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Neil Patrick Harris has just, like, said outright that it's the Toymaker. Okay. Yeah. I hope the moths haven't been out his outfit, that's all. 
<laughs> he's got lots of outfits from judging by the pictures mm. so that's the great intelligence but then of course you know the, the sort of silent stars of this are, are the yeti what do we what do we make of those what do we make of the yeti Denise, come on, you love you love a Yeti, I know you do. Well, I was a little bit discombobulated because the animated versions are quite different to the actual versions that we've seen in the Web of Fear and every picture that exists doesn't look like a collection of Merkins doing Brian Blessed cosplay. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's like big furry things wearing a beard and... <laughs> No eyes, no nothing else. That's it. That's what you get with your animated Yeti. And so I was a little bit confused. They don't really look like that, do they? So it was. And, we, and which generally of the Yetis? Because there are two two models of Yeti: the Web of Fear ones with the eyes and the laser guns, and these ones which are a bit more cuddly and berry. Which ones do you tend to? Which ones do you tend to prefer? Well, I mean, I like a cuddle. I do, and um, then the, the news flashes are coming in here, thick and fast. Ian McKellen is good. Denise likes a cuddle. Stay, stay tuned. This is off the hook. This episode. Who knows yeah. what's going to happen next? I mean, just um, seeing some of the uh, the eight millimeter footage that was shot in the DVD in the DVD extras from Fraser Hines and yeah. from you know, and just seeing sort of people having cuddles with the yetis in between tapes and things like that. And I just thought, yeah, that's exactly what I'd be doing as well, you know, or I'd be seeing if there was room for me in those trousers as well. uh... How about you, Dylan? So this was your first time seeing the yeti in action, I guess? First Uh, yeti story. Yes. Uh, My main take on this, my main take on this is that speaking as someone with little sisters who are both under 10, I can absolutely see how this is something that could scare little kids. Uh, but believe it or not, I braved it out because I'm very brave. But but uh, yeah, I dig them. I, I dig the thing of like, you have the spheres and the spheres like fly back into them. And I <laughs> wish, obviously we all wish that we just had the original episodes, but I especially want to see like Troutron like ho- holding the ball in his hands, trying to stop it from flying back in and Stratton just having to like <laughs> Act really hard, like the ball is trying to fly back. That that that's that's the classic stuff because that was what that's funny just to think about. But yes, I am pro Yeti. I think that they're just a good, simple Doctor Who monster. It like there there isn't like there are rules to them, but there's not like a huge amount of gimmickry to them. They just are the Yeti. I I think. It would be cool to do more stuff like that. Just do like mythological creatures, but like it's a robot version of them or something. Oh, that's interesting because this, this I believe this story came about from uh, that the writers bumped into Patrick Troughton out in London, who was bemoaning the fact that he wanted more Earth-based stories, and they thought, well, you know, what Earth-based monster monsters are they? And they're like, well, we couldn't possibly make a story about a Loch Ness monster. I mean, who's going to watch that? <laughs> um, so they went with the Yeti, and that was kind of this was sort of going back in your sixties, seventies. I think we've talked yeah. this before in other podcasts about it. it was a time of kind of that sort of folklore mythology. That spooky paranormal stuff, like mm-hmm. Pete. You, this is more your wheelhouse. You like a bit of folk horror and stuff. Where does all this? Yet, where do you think this yeti come about? Well, and it's those questions that you can't actually answer that fascinate me. Like, what what percentage of people in 1967 
thought that yetis were probably real and what proportion didn't because you imagine that for all of these and, and same with the Loch Ness Monster you imagine that people would have been much more open-minded before everywhere had been swept with um, motion detecting probes and things um, but there are still people out there trying to find the thing in Loch Ness um, despite although the, the, the thing that ruined Loch Ness for me was going there in my 20s still with a hint of X-Files, the hope that there might be something out there. And there's a museum there that, that's quite controversial with the local Loch Ness industry because it's just basically the museum of, of course, there isn't a fucking monster. It's, <laughs> that's not its actual title. <laughs> but yeah. like, there's no fish. What can it eat? There's no, there's this, there's that. The thing would fall over. Where would, where are all the bodies? Where does it shit? Where does it? <laughs> and they're just like, how could one? And, and by the end of it, you're less, it, 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 um, uh, it showed you, you know, and how this is how these, this is how this is obviously a photo of a log this is how this is obviously a photo of another log um <laughs> by the end of it i was like i feel really i just this has just broken something within me i didn't like these facts I, uh, I, they may have turned it down i think subsequently because i think it had only just opened when i was there <laughs> and, uh, so but yeah th- th- this idea that you know the, the yeti was something that people were still actively hunting at least in the 50s there was a um, uh, the, the Daily Mail ran a, uh, a an expedition of its own to go and try and find the Yeti after the first pictures. There was, a, there was an expedition that came back uh, called the Shipley Expedition that came back in the early fifties with the um, uh, I'll use the word iconic because this is not an overuse of it. Photo of a giant footprint with an axe next to it because they were showing how big this giant footprint was, which we've all seen or seen or heard debunked in Doctor Who Marco Polo, where they find that giant footprint at the end of the first episode and at the start of the second episode. Is it Ian or Barbara who explains that um, it's because of a foot melting in the snow and it gets bigger and bigger as, as it melts over time? Uh, uh, so, but but that th- there's a lovely bit in the animation where they replicate that, where the Doctor puts his hand in the uh, in in the footprint when he finds it at the start of episode one, um, and that sh- that shot is lined up just like this 1950s photo of a giant footprint that had, that sparked a bit of a, a bit of a craze. Having having got to the top of Everest, they then decided to try and find the more exciting stuff around it. So yeah, I, I do love that the whole X Files element to it and being mm-hmm. able to. Because it, it, it is, I can't think of any other. Well, the, the Yeti and the Loch Ness monster are the two Doctor Who thing, things that have appeared in Doctor Who that that you know might be real, or certainly at the time that they first appeared, were still considered to maybe be out there somewhere, and we just couldn't find them yet. Unless you count ghosts and vampires. Yes. Yes, I had forgotten about those two things, which actually <laughs> occur quite a lot, don't they? Yeah, they're somehow in a different category to me because then they're, they're not just animals. That's why I think I was, yeah, I was, I was talking more narrowly than that. What about the ghosts of pets? What about those? Okay, Ooh. okay, break it up, Scooby. <laughs> there was a Loch Ness monster, and it starved to death because there aren't any fish in Loch Ness for it to eat, and or not enough fish in Loch Ness for it to eat. But now its ghost is haunting Loch Ness. I think we should make a Loch Ness monster somehow. Like you're right, the museum is right that there isn't a Loch Ness monster, but Pete, you were right that there should be. That it just makes emotional yeah. sense, and it would be better if there was. We should find a way. There, there's a lake in Norway which also has its own monster legend so uh, so maybe maybe it commutes who knows could be maybe it moved on <laughs> how did it jump 
<laughs> Swam. I feel like this has got to be a great scam. If you just put, a, if you live near a big enough lake or like a pretty enough lake that yeah. when you look at it, you you just kind of want to think maybe there's something in there. If you put about a rumor that there's something in there, stage a few little photos, maybe kill a man. <laughs> just yeah, you've got to give it a little bit of reality. Yeah, put some effort into it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. maybe maybe plant a few conspiracy theories and those sort of nutty podcasts you get on the internet. Oh wait, we're doing mm. it now. Yeah. <laughs> um, I noticed going back to the Great Intelligence, there was a nice little detail in the animation where behind Padma Sampavar's throne there was a big kind of globe sphere thing which is they modelled on the one in the snowmen which I thought was a really nice little bit of sort of visual continuity mm. but like generally with animation you're going to be taking sort of interpretations you know it's, it's an interpretation on something overall how was it how was the animation for you um I mean I was just going to talk about it was quite interesting they made Travers really tall compared to all the other characters and that was a little bit confusing I mean we know Patrick Troughton and Fraser Hines aren't very tall people but then and obviously Tibetans tend to be a smaller race of people than Western Europeans so yeah but Travers I mean Jack Watling's not very tall is he (laughs) and yet he's like he's like a full foot taller than uh, (laughs) than all of the other characters in some of the scenes and that was odd but um yeah um and some of them obviously had slightly different appearances Tomney had a very different hairstyle yeah yeah, and they've obviously they've obviously gone for what. To be fair, in the sixties, they were doing their best to try and give a, a, a to try to try and create what did not just look like a load of actors from the south of England. They they they, they tried to make the people look and and present differently to each other because because it's supposed to be a the monastery is supposed to have people at it who've travelled from all over to be there. I, th- I think it's not mentioned, but I, I guess that's and they've got the warriors for. and they've got the yeah. more normal monks as well. Yeah, and the animation have been able to to do that. Obviously, make it look more in an anim- in an animated way, make it look more more naturalistic, which is, I'm sure is what they would have done if they could at the time. But um, I, 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 Trouton, there are moments in the animation where they they really get Trouton's face. They get the most out of it, out of his eyebrows and out of his yeah. furrowed mm-hmm. brows, um, which must be a, a a real nice asset for them to, to be able to work with. And like that, we were saying, that is one of the great things about the Trouton animations. Yeah. You know, he's yeah. got that amazing flexible face with all of those lines. It must be a joy. Yeah. And I did prefer. I watched a bit in color. I watched a bit of the color widescreen, like I said, and, and then a bit of the, the the black and white. And and the, I prefer the black and white not just for nostalgia purposes, but also because it, it everything's more. You've got the shades of grey, um, so it's more shadowy. I suppose is what I'm saying. Rather, whereas in color, um, it, it it's a bit it, it's brighter, and I mean that might be nicer to look at. But for this story, having having those shades of grey and a little bit of gloom, because the things that you see, I mean, the the filmed episode, the episode, the real episode that really exists, uh, that there's so much of people walking in and out of shadows, and the camera is is, is never static, uh, even in the studio. Uh, there's cameras follow people down corridors and things like that. Which with the animation, they haven't got that much flexibility to be able to to, to do all that because they've just got to set up their, their scenes and, and go with it but um but I, I think it's it's really successful it it, it uh it takes you into the story completely which is the its main job which is which is an incredible thing to be depth it's an incredible thing for it to be able to succeed at at all when this is not 
animated storytelling. This is storytelling that's been designed around actors standing still and slightly furrowing their brows and things like that, which no one who was, I would imagine, nobody who was creating a story for, for the animated format would, would write these scenes in, in this way and have long, quiet bits of people creeping around and exploring rooms. Um, or they might, but they would do it differently. And so the fact that it, that it, that it carries it is, uh, is pretty impressive. Yeah. Like I said, this is my first animation. This is a little odd, but the an- animation reminds me of nothing so much as Archer. It, it just... <laughs> but but, but to, be, to be honest, like, I was I was watching this and I was thinking, hmm, the animation is a bit limited. And then I remembered that this is two and a half hours long and it was probably made on, like, $17. So it, the fact that it, it looks all right and they do managed to do a lot with little to make the characters quite expressive and to get get across everything. I think there are like a couple of points along the way where there are like pauses and like they just kind of like hold on the shot or have a bit a, a bit of movement or a movement or a bit of business to like kind of like fill the time rather than really do something with it in terms of like the actor making ch- you know, making choices for the character, the character, and how the character reacts in that moment, and at those points, I was like, "Hmm, yes, I, I have, I have remembers that I'm watching an animation reconstruction of something that no longer exists." But most of the time, I was just not thinking about the fact that this is originally something different, which sounds odd because Doctor Who was never a cartoon. But I think you basically know what I mean. I after the first couple of minutes, you just go with it which I think is the best thing that can be said about it, especially considering, like, again, how necessarily limited it is. It, it does just make it work. Yeah, I think I, th- I think um, I think you're right, and I think the the sense of place helps this one. You know, with with something yeah. like Galaxy Four, you've got to invent everything from the ground up. Right? I think this having a strong sense of place. Uh, I think the Tibetan, I think the monastery, they did a fantastic job with that, and I think. Um, they, and in particularly watching it in black and white, like you said, like, like you said, Pete, there's quite some really nice shadows in there and stuff. I quite like the fact they didn't have a ceiling on that, that it happened in a courtyard. I thought that was just a good sort of, you know, it's not faithful to the programme, but it's probably faithful to what the programme would do if it had a budget. So I thought that was a, a sort of a good call. Um, and some of the, th- the 3D modelling I liked. I love the sphere, the way the spheres rolled and glowed. Mm. I thought that was cool. I like the web, the sort of webby, weird webby effect that comes out of the the pyramid, um, and I think uh, I think and actually it's worth saying I was I was just saying I watched this in the BFI um, and a couple of things struck me is that um, when you're watching it with an audience, you know an audience will tell you what they like and don't like. You know you can't fake that out of an audience. And it was interesting that that dramatically like some of those laughs you absolutely the biggest laugh being when Victoria <laughs> starts yeah. going, oh, I won't have anything to eat. I oh, know, maybe I will. And then she starts to like, <laughs> and then starts, pretends to, pretends to choke. And then and the camera goes dutifully over to poor Tom Mead, sort of going, oh, I wonder what's wrong with this drink. Turns around and she's at the door going, sorry, see ya. Slams the door. And it brought the house down. And I was like, you can't fake that in animation. You can, you know, that, 
it was really earned in there. You know, yeah. the, I mean, sitting in the BFI, bless them, you're amongst all our fellow nerds. And sometimes you get those kind of knowing laughs that where people are just like laughing to show they know something. It's so annoying. Um, but this was a kind of real genuine audience laugh, whether it was like... Yeah, I, I, was I, like stopped, I stopped myself from laughing when you said that. You know what I mean? But this, it, was not, it was a nice, really warm, genuine laugh that you can get. And there was a few of those, some of those reactions in was really interesting and I was it's by pure coincidence I happened to be sat next to Gary Russell who directed it and oh. as the lights went down I really felt from his shoulders were up he was like really tensed and I was just like oh bless him and as the lights went down he just went oh I wish they showed it in black and white um yeah, and then, but he, yeah which is interesting but um yeah. but no it was great and I think he was very sort of warmed by the the reaction it got mm-hmm. um and I think the only other time he said anything, he was like, goats, when they put goats in there. He was obviously very excited about the goats he put in there, which I thought, okay, fair enough. Um, one thing I found really interesting, though, but it was nice to see it as a whole. One thing I thought was interesting, though, is um, you're talking about uh, about Travers being quite tall. And it's and the, um, you know, there are different animation houses. There's BBC Studios, BBC Studios and Big Finish Creative. And... The, the the you know the 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 designs of these figures are kind of they're quite tall and they're kind of kind of quite long limbs and they have quite sort of long jackets down to there whatever. Mm-hmm. What they got the concept designer Yoan Morris up on stage and the second I saw him I was like I feel like I've seen you before. His proportions <laughs> are exactly like that. He's got long. <laughs> he's a nice tall gentleman, long of limb, wore a nice long big jacket down there. So sort of not a huge head, but a small head, and basically he's an exact proportion. So he has done what he is, Mister Motion. Yeah, he is Mister Motion, and he's done what you know Nick Park with Wallace and Gromit does. You can, if you see Nick Park talk, you can see him talking like Gromit and Wallace and Gromit. Animators will, of course, go with their reference. So oh, I've just felt very relieved. What was that? Oh, <laughs> Which one is it? Yeah. Oh, come the dog, is it? Oh, God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He, he talks like Bob and he talks exclusively with the eyebrows. That's yeah. it. That's it. But anyway, I was quite, I was like, it was a moment of revelation for me. I was like, that's, that's where the, the model came from. So I just felt very sort of vindicated on that. Um, but I think, um, but okay, but the big, I think probably the biggest change or the biggest kind of creative choice in this, I say the biggest, but one of the most dramatic, is is Padma Sambhavar and how they, they, they've made a conscious choice, like they did in Fury from the Deep, when they're like, at the end, we're going to have huge tentacles coming out of the sea, you know, which they never would have been able to have done on TV. This seemed like this was their big money change. So in the TV series, you've got, and, and the rationale is, in the TV series, you've got uh, Wolf Morris, who's quite a corpulent man, you know, in his makeup and stuff. And I think the rationale was, if he was a monk that had been sat there for 300 years, kind of wizened and whatever, he wouldn't be huge. He'd be this kind of skinny spectral thing. What, what did you think? What do we think of the of this interpretation of Padmasambhava? It was actually that that um, led me to dig out my copy of the novelization because I wanted to remind myself of how he looked in the in the book, and I sort of had a memory of him being more. Being oh. smaller, almost. Conrad's baby. holding it up. We'll but, tweet that out. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah, he it, it looks more like a three hundred year old might look. Yes. Than the yes. guy on telly does. Yeah. yeah. And um, you know, so I thought he'd be more like. Uh, I mean, you've had other representations in other shows of a tiny wizened little creature that's been there for hundreds of years. That's quite a common trope in Doctor Who and in other series as well. Yeah, I, um, I saw on the um, on the extras, they were talking about the original visual effect for the death 
of the Padma Samovar, mm. who they also call the Master, but let's not go there because I'm oh, confused yeah. already. <laughs> Another Troughton story with a character called the Master in it. That's three. That's three, yeah. <laughs> um, where um, the flesh was going to melt off his skull and all the rest of it. And they actually did it, but of course it never made it to air. But uh, as they were just saying, no, you can't do that. That's horrible. The children will be terrified. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, that's interesting. That's interesting. And of course, we and we know we've got a whole. You know, we've got some extras on here. We've um, uh, Troughton in Tibet. Um, mm-hmm. What do we make of that? Well, I mean, it it always makes me happy to see Toby Haydock because um, lucky enough to meet him at a convention in 2019, and he was so lovely. And after my mum died, he sent me such a nice message on Twitter. He is a really, really lovely guy and he deserves every bit of success that he gets. I think he works really hard and he is one of the good guys. And so always gives me a happy to see him. And he's always very funny and very lovely as well. And Fraser Hines, obviously, he's anecdotes are well rehearsed, but to actually put him back in Snowdonia and surprise him with a TARDIS and, you know, to just, he's got it all in context and more things are coming back to him because he's actually back there again for the first time in so many years. I mean, I really loved it. I mean, I love North Wales anyway. I'm a bit of a Port Merion fan. So, um, and I like to go back there on the rare occasions I find myself in that corner of the country. But uh, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. I think I think that's sort of like meeting someone who you know and admire for their work in a convention context and it goes well. That's like a pretty special experience. Like uh, it must be, yeah, it's five years ago now that I met a artist and creator that I who I really admire called Neil Ciceriga uh, at uh, LeakyCon, which I was at at the time. We shall not speak of controversial matters. Uh, and... Uh, yeah, yeah, it's it's just like I really admired him and took him as a creative role model, and he took the time to talk to me and like engage with me, even though I was like quite flustered and everything. And yada, yada. yeah, and like it's it's just something that I've always held with me. It's really nice because you know people are just people, but uh, the same as anyone else. But like it all all the same, you do get attached to like people who you admire, and it's always good when the interaction goes well. So yeah. And it's lovely in the um, uh, well, it's it's bittersweet, isn't it, in the documentary? You know that they've got lovely stories to tell about Debbie Watling, and of course, Pat- Patrick Troughton's been gone for so long that he wasn't ever a part of obviously, you know, the the the, the same the same bonus feature material that whereas people like Debbie, of course, were mm-hmm. for um for a long time uh, fixtures on on the convention circuit and things like that. So it's sad to have them uh, that we're now getting their stories secondhand or from clips from earlier episode from 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 previous interviews but it's lovely that it's all there and just 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 wrapping it all up together uh beautifully filmed and they got an extremely sunny day for it didn't they mm. it was lovely i think they were saying i think uh, the bfi chris chapman was saying like this should be on like uh, um snowdonia in the particular place they were filming it this should be on the sort of doctor who fans location list yeah. like old born for devil's end like this is one of uh, <laughs> the so specific get- rock yeah. God, that, that specific rock has now been identified. I bet it's in Google Maps with a tag. I bet it's been tagged. We'll find out what it's what three words are. Pete, Pete this is where you can set up. Like, there's no such fucking thing as the Yeti shop. There's <laughs> this is the place in Wales. I think. <laughs> yeah. Please, I could retire there. It's great. <laughs> 
Let's have, and this is where we can set up our hoax squad. Brilliant. I love it. Um, <laughs> Yeah, I also really like the, um, there's some lovely little interviews there. I have to say, I really kind of gasped, actually, when they had Raymond Llewellyn, who played one of the monks, Sapan, and he's in his oh. 90s, like, sharp as attack, giving some really, really good anecdotes. I love that. And seeing David Spencer, very recognisable uh, as Tom me. Um, it was nice to see mm. a little bit of him. Um, and they had, I think what was really good, um, they had John Hogan, who was one of the last, he was the last surviving Yeti, uh, actor um, so they got had an interview with him and um, unfortunately quite sadly at the BFI um, Chris Chapman did say that since they recorded that um, unfortunately he's passed away um, which is quite sad but how fantastic that they've got his you know they've managed to interview him and we've got this forever and mm-hmm. you know and then of course there's the eight millimeter footage did anybody have a little look at that mm-hmm. yes that. yeah that in fact that had been I'd seen that before because that was on the um Oh, the yeah. tape that I was shown in the mid '80s, uh, that uh, yeah, um, that I was shown the the episode, and it had that footage on the end of it with some. I think it might have been some Jean-Michel Jarre music dubbed over it or something. Uh, but but it was all sort. Of, it it was very yeah, very ethereal, sort of slightly yeah, sort of he- heavenly electronic music playing, and as you saw these color, but but wobbling all over the place uh, blobs. Uh, and that, that there's that moment as of um, Debbie Watling's walking up the hill towards Fraser's filming, I suppose, uh, and uh, and she looks up into the camera and smiles, and it pauses, uh, and it's just a it's a wonderful mm-hmm. moment. And I I got myself uh, from I think I must have just bought it from a catalogue or something. You could buy postcards of characters, you know, pre in pre-internet days. And I I got a, a po- I had a postcard of um of her in in her Victorian. It's a cyclist's costume that she's wearing. Mm-hmm. I only, only found out today. That's what it actually is. It's what the first Victorian lady cyclists used to wear in the 1890s. I think uh, of all of the outfits that she wears in the show, I think that is the one that suits her best. It's great, I isn't it? Yeah. And, and actually, and, her, and, and so I, I had that postcard of her in front of the TARDIS. Uh, it's quite a famous publicity shot, I think, uh, in that costume on, on my wardrobe for, for years and years. And that, that was, even when I went through my tragic i've grown out of doctor who phase which lasted for about three years in my 20s uh even even during that phase it, it stayed on the wall or it stayed in my wardrobe uh, and uh, and it's still it's still knocking around somewhere now but Vic, this is, victoria is a real um revelation to me in these in, in the recent trout and things that have been coming out um in enemy of the world too uh but especially in this to just just re- reappraising this because she gets remembered as sort of screaming and being captured a lot um i think uh, and and actually particularly through through tomb and this she's she's your she's your plucky get up and go uh the doc she's the one who you know at the end when the doctor tells the tells them not to come in no matter what they hear while he's having his conflict with the great intelligence uh she uh she's the one who's got the wherewithal to stop them bursting in when they hear the doctor screaming for, at first because uh, to, to follow his instructions and uh and yeah she's she, she's given she's got so much uh of, of the right attitude to uh to, to be a, a really good companion through several of her first stories and maybe toward I don't know, maybe later in her run she become um I mean, certainly by the time of fury from the deep she's uh she just wants out but then that's a that's a, that's a character arc obviously that that is in fury from the deep she's some she's supposed to be someone who's had enough of all this drama 
Um, so yeah, it's a really good story for Victoria, even though she she doesn't get a massive massive subplots to do, but all the, her creeping around and breaking out, like you said, uh, yeah. Really, and she gets really to be hypnotized her. a couple of times, and uh, yeah. she I liked her relationship with Tomney, and that's something that comes yeah. across well in the novelization as well. And mm-hmm. it's like you know, if he wasn't a monk, there could almost be a little bit of romance there, but uh, yeah. you know, she's a little bit too cheeky and a little bit too feisty for him. Yeah, and she has to trick him while still sort of mm. being nice about it. <laughs> yeah, that was done with a really gentle touch. I liked that. I think if if they had been like really gone in on it and like done a whole thing, then I would have felt it was unearned. But just kind of like doing the look, which by the way is again done quite well with the animation in like uh, with like limited resources, uh, it it all comes off quite well. And uh, I also really enjoyed that hypnotism scene, especially like the bit where the doctor hypnotizes her, because that's so what I was, again, what I was talking about earlier with the doctor, like, you know, saving the day, helping and protecting his friends, but in a way that is so shady. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it works. You're right. It works. I think that's something where it really works in the animation where they have his eyes, you know, you see, you see her eyes slowly closing, and you see the reflection of him in her eyes as she's her eyes are getting droopy and stuff. And it's, uh, yeah. and again, it's one of those moments that you know. I mean, the scene is beautifully paced and beautifully played, and it's. I think it's terrifying her getting hypnotized and just repeating that thing until she's going to lose her mind unless they get her out of there. Is yeah, is really yeah. high peril. And, and as soon as she's free of it, in the very next scene, the doctor say the doctor says, "You should go away so that you'll be safe." And, and, and she's like, "I'm not going to." And he says, "No, I don't you wouldn't really." <laughs> yeah, but like, that's yeah. Victoria. I've got you back now. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And oh, just to, you mentioned there that was a really good bit of animation. Yes, because I'd meant to mention that about the eyes. I've forgotten another thing. I think I've forgotten to mention is the um, the astral plane section when yes. he talks about um, first encountering the uh, the great intelligence because that it's a, they just drop that in. And I mean, it's something that I've come across before, so I. I was surprised there wasn't a bit more explaining of it because um, it's just dropped in as a thing that we probably know about. And maybe in maybe in the sixties, everyone was used to hearing the Beatles talk about it. I don't know, but um, it was uh, maybe it was a sixties counterculture thing that everyone had already picked up. I was like, oh yeah, I was on I was on the astral plane, and the Doctor just says, ah oh, yes, of course. And, and um, there's but there's then some fantastic animation of, of swirling colours around him, which which, I, which the telly snaps don't show anything like that. I assume it was just a close up of his face as he described it on when it actually broadcast. Uh, but that's a lovely bit of hey we can do this it 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 did remind me of uh the similar bit from can you hear me in series 12 more recently oh yeah really stylized like a similar like stylized Mm. like in context that was like the one animated bit of that episode but like it just like as a way of handling exposition, I find it really interesting to like you just go into stylized animation when the tone of what's being talked about kind of supports it. Yeah, there's yeah. a bit of that, and there's a great bit like that in Watership Down, where they yeah. um, the rabbits start talking about their ancient history and their folklore, and it becomes yeah. a flashback. And that is done in in a folk art style. Completely, the, the style of the animation mm. changes. Uh, you see this this yeah folk art style, almost cave painting style uh, yeah. drawings of of them recounting their legends, and then it snaps back to real animation uh, when 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 they come back into the moment. It's yeah, there are a bunch of now now that I've said it, there are a bunch of examples popping into my head. You, I think you see something like that in the Breadwinner from Cartoon Saloon, 
uh, in more mainstream stuff, I'm I'm sure it's in Ice Age. Uh, what was the other? Yeah, uh, Bee and Puppycat, which is a Netflix kind of young adult series, also has a bit like that in the second episode. Yeah, it's so. There's the episode of Bojack Horseman where he gets so high that he looks at himself in a mirror and it's a real horse instead of a cartoon <laughs> horse. <laughs> yeah. I've, 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 yeah, we're going off maybe. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. It's, it, it's a neat trick. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it is a technique I like a lot and it, it works to good effect here. Again, especially with like the limited resources and just like making choice sparsely so that you can still reasonably say that this is like a representation of something that once existed but no longer exists but still finding ways to make it work in the animated medium in a way that it wouldn't work if you just like translated just literally from what it probably was in the first place because in the in this animation it probably it probably would have been less compelling anyway if it was just like a close-up on an act on an actor's face for that whole time but like notably when it's a live action actor or even when it's an animation with more time and more money you could like do things with the animation in this situation you can like you can move his eyebrows a bit <laughs> and that's <laughs> that's kind of where we're at and uh like i, th- I thought that this was that yeah this really is a smart choice yeah, I think it, it, I think I think it is interesting. Apparently, they did slightly curse it when Gary said he uh, he said, "I know we're going to see a young version of him, you know, floating on the astral plane." And all the animators was like, "This is a whole new character we've now got to make, and we've got uh-huh. now to a whole new like spacey stuff and all this kind of stuff." Because of course, yeah. in animation, you think of something, you have to invent it from the ground up. Um, yeah. And another thing which I thought was neat in that scene, apparently, Mark Ayres, the uh, oh, the brilliant sound and music guru. Um, when they show him sort of meeting the great intelligence on the astral plane, he uses a sound effect, which is the same sound effect from the web of fear when the great intelligence meets the TARDIS out in space. He's used the same sound for that. And that's, I mean, that kind of level of detail and creativity and care on that thing. There's also just, just there's a couple of other little things like that. So, um, I know that Gary said that um, he also wanted some of the animation to have continuity with other animations. So when the Doctor brings out this machine, which I don't think there's any actual photographic reference for, it's basically a signal-blocking machine, um, there was effectively the same sort of gadget needed in the Fury from the Deep. So he used the same gadget from the, the animated Fury from the Deep for this one. And also when Travers... Uh, is at the end is sort of going to go off on his adventures. He pockets the uh, a little model Yeti, and apparently mm-hmm. that's exactly the same sort that they used for the Web of Fear animation. So there is some uh-huh. sort of continuity within them, which I think is just super neat. But that's it's very um, satisfying, yeah. yeah I kind of I think those things are, are yeah. really really nice. Um, yeah. But but we're at a sort of a funny stage now because uh, at the start of this year we we heard that BBC America's funding had come to an end. Uh, for this, you know, it could come to its natural end and they chose not to renew. So at the moment, this is the last animation for the time being. Um, what, do, what do we make of that? What have you, obviously, Dylan, you said this is your first animation, but sort of anybody, how, what do you make of, what, what will that do to your Doctor experience? What do you think they might do going forward? I remain hopeful. Yeah. And um, I suppose a lot is going to depend on the um, season two blu-ray box set which is going to come out quite soon and um if that sells well 
and I hope it does, then I suppose I was thinking, well, can we put together any more complete seasons from the black and white era of Doctor Who, you know, and that will involve having to do more animations. I mean, if they don't want to do it, they don't want to do it. And there's nothing as we as fans can say or do that would ever change their minds, and we know this, but because uh, we've all been here before, anyone who was alive in the 80s <laughs> has been through this before. But um, I am not without hope. What do you think, Pete? Yeah, I'm sure this is not the end of the recreation of old Doctor Who stories. It, uh, it's the end of one way of paying for it. Which, which BBC America. So yeah, when, once Mr. T Davies has his has everything under control, and uh, uh, he's he's going to have resources available, or the ability at least to strike strike new deals that um, that I would imagine he would be interested in doing. But I don't know whether we're going to see that as cartoons in the way that these are again, or whether we're, we're going to whether the next leap is really into the world of um, of uh, you know deep fake and things like that god but... no sorry <laughs> you're, you're lucky that my camera isn't working because i just pulled it <laughs> i am oh. not a fan of the deep fake don't worry I, th- um, I think you possessed dylan because it all came through his face just then i think it, <laughs> oh. dylan would channel you were channeling through dylan we're we're, we're on the same page here dylan <laughs> so instead of dylan like as as possibly the youngest member of this cast i'm not quite sure how would you like them done why no to deep fake what would you like instead so how would you like to how would you buy these missing stories don't cry dylan <laughs> <laughs> he's got his head in his hands i'm so yeah, we've broken, yeah, dylan. Yeah, we've broken yeah. dylan just for the stress of the, the term deep fake because look we know what they use it for we don't want to put more development into this technology people are like Oh, it could be used for political hoaxes. It's already used for very bad stuff all the time. So, uh, like, and like, look, have decades and decades of Cyberman stories taught us nothing? We do not want to be meddling with these things. <laughs> for the love of God, uh, and, and and also, they look rubbish. None of them look good. It's <laughs> no, I would, I, I. Uh... I don't want this. I would be very surprised if Russell the Davies wanted this. Uh, and that is that. Now, circling back, as far as my own Doctor Who experience goes, uh, this is my first animation. So if I want more animations, then I can just go watch any of the multiplicity of animations available from this line and from others besides. It does seem to me that this is probably getting stopped just because it was selling to only a particular very devoted but small market of people who want to see this and it probably wasn't making back the kind of money that they wanted to make from it and uh yeah when you're I can't imagine it being made for a reason other than that although you never know what's going on behind the scenes but if that is the reason that this is the case, then like there's j- just not much you can do with that. I I think, uh, unless anyone wants to like run a huge successful campaign to get people really really into the episodes that don't exist. So and all the same, I do agree with what has been said already that like th- these recreations are going to continue getting made at least by the fans, and I think. 
I think that's grand. I think so long as the passion is kept alive. Yeah, because the Daleks master plan is that one great big one that's there. The only Dalek story that's not had a, an animation, is there? Yeah, yeah. Oh, but yeah, the only missing Dalek story that's not had an animation. Um, and you'd think that would be the sort of the the, 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 the jewel in the crown of, of doing these, but would need a much bigger budget. I, mean, I got the impression that the Power of the Daleks and Evil of the Daleks ones had a higher budget or, or were given more time that they, they they're done using a maybe more labor intensive process or something, but um, that they, uh, and particularly the most recent um, evil of the Daleks uh, is, is one, which is the only one that I've watched in its entirety in color and been happy to do that because it, it makes it feel like that's how it was always meant to be. It doesn't feel colorized, which I know is a silly word to mm. use. When, when they, it, they use a good but, color palette, don't they? It's yeah, not, yeah. It's not Technicolor, but having said that, I would love to see glorious Technicolor Marco Polo. Mm, that would be nice. There's, I, it's funny, I was going back to look at, because it's tempting, to, as Doctor Who fans, we always panic, and when something stops, we're like, oh no, it's been cancelled, as if it's been happening forever. But I look back, and actually, this the first animation came out in 2006, which was the invasion, by uh, which the Cosgrove Hall uh, people did. And basically, it's been on and off mm. since 2006. So the last 16 years, we've been getting them in fits and starts, and I think it's just that recently, there's been a bit of a role where the two main studios... Uh, Big Finish Creative and BBC Studios have been sort of basically alternating. So we've been getting them um, increasingly sort of high standards. But I mean, I, I was looking and over the, so here's some little little stats for you. So after the last 16 years, we've had 14 stories have been sort of recreated with animation. Um, that's about 49 episodes in total, given that some of the scenes are sort of it's scenes from Sharda. Um, and it, but it's taken seven different studios who've been involved in patching that together. So it's not like there's been one long thing that's just stopped. So it sort of shows you that probably there's going to be a few more. Com- it's, it's the thing that just comes and going, comes and goes, and I think it's sort of largely down to, to funding. But we're sort of broadly halfway through having animated all of the stories, just in terms of numbers. Um, so we've had about 49 episodes have been animated so far. If you don't include the Crusade and... The Underwater Menace, which have sort of been released. There's another 47 to go, so about halfway through, 11 stories. So, yeah, who knows? Um, Conrad, you know. I like your thinking. I think uh, mm. the statistics there are making me happy. They hadn't occurred to me until now. And, um, yeah, the fact that they are using different animation studios, that helps to keep it fresh with the different mm. styles, the different approaches. Of course, the return of Russell T. Davis. He he's seen that this is a way to give something that he loves himself back to the fans, and he's going to have a fair amount of creative control over the whole panopticon of Doctor Who going forward. It's um, I'm not without hope, like I say, but uh, if there's an uptick of interest in Doctor Who generally, then that could translate into an uptick of sales in the animation, or at least yeah. convince the decision makers that uh, another animation could be viable. Anyway, it does sound like this isn't like dead search, but also that it's not a given. My my dream is to see the space pirates done in the style of Jerry Anderson Thunderbird puppets, because it's just, it's that type of story. It's that type of script. Um, And, uh, and I tweeted this on the thread that someone was talking about it. 
And I got a reply from this guy saying, oh, believe me, we've offered. And I clicked. And it was the guy who does the... Because they're doing them now. They're doing... They're making new Thunderbirds episodes in the style of the original series. I think using radio... They're doing visuals for radio episodes that were done or that were done for an audio release. So the people who do that are actually up for it. But it might be more expensive than just doing an animation. Doing an animation, perhaps. Doing a a cartoon animation. Because you actually have to build props and things. So Mm -hmm. uh, maybe it's... But that would be, I would just love that. That would be very, very cool. And one thing's for sure, if whatever animation, whenever they return again, and it's worth, I'm sure maybe we'll put some links into all talk track ones, reviews of all the other animations if you want to, to sort of revisit them. Um, but um, one thing's for sure, yeah, the Trap One team will be back to review it in 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 some shape, whatever shape or form. It'll be in whatever shape or form we'll be in. Um, Even but, if we're ninety, we'll still do it. They'll animate us. It'll be Get fine. There, yeah, Dylan will just be wheeling us around in wheelchairs, feeding us, and just sort of <laughs> <laughs> telling us what to say. I, of course, am immune to aging. Yes. Yeah. No, he's forever. Yeah. Well, well, I'm against it personally, but mm-hmm. uh, yeah. 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 Well, um, thank you very much uh, for listening to this. If you've enjoyed this and other Trap Ones, please feel free to give us a star rating or even give us a review on iTunes. And meanwhile, gang, where can we find you? Okay, well, I'm the Vice President of Archibald Press, which you can find at archibaldpress.com. That's A-R-C-B-E-A-T-L-E, press.com. And if you want to generally give me money and support me in that way, which is my favorite way for people to support me, then you can do that at patreon.com slash loafers, where you can get advance access to music that I write for soundtracks and things. Thank you very much. We'll also put some links to your um, Trap 1 episodes you've done about your 12th Doctor uh, audios that you're involved with. How are they going? Uh, Oh, oh, they're going great. Uh, We're currently working on the 8th episode which is called Send Ouds. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I take it back. We are not putting any links to this. <laughs> that is, that yeah. is genius. That uh, is genius. It's, it's, it's going to be a heist episode. I've been writing heist music. Uh, yeah, it's it does include an oud. It includes an oud. <laughs> it's that's, hard uh, not to do that. Uh, that that's like... Uh, What's the word for them? You know, like sex phone operators. I don't remember what the actual term for this is, but you know, it's just, you call them up and they talk all breath down the line to you and yeah. they charge you fifty pound for it. And, and yeah, one of those, but an ood. Talking the normal in the normal ood voice. <laughs> I'm speechless. A rude dude. Rude dude. <laughs> Wait, wait until you hear it. Wait until you hear it. I, I had to write the soundtrack. If you're in for the that. mood, get rude with a nude. Oh my god. I, I had to write music for this. I had to write the soundtrack for Sexy Ood. Sexy Ood music. <laughs> well, it sounds like you're a chap who likes a challenge. <laughs> Gosh. How about you, Pete? What have you uh, been up to? I dread to ask after that. I, Can you... <laughs> nothing to match that. But, um, but launching very soon will be the long-awaited uh, second season of Maximum Power, a Blake 7 podcast. We will be reviewing our way through the series and now that where where that show has really found its feet uh, and uh, we've got a very exciting launch episode with a very special guest that will be coming mm-hmm. out probably quite soon after this episode comes out from the wonderful trap one so listen out for that very intriguing how about you denise well i am mainly on the twitter and i am up 
at cup of tea 69 i've also got a link to my blog on there which is if you have a taste for appallingly bad poetry and um nostalgia then it is the place for you i've put up uh, my last blog entry was about um this scrapbook of the royal tour that my mum made when she was 13 years old in 1953-1954 so that's all up there with some historical context and some other links and things and a uh, bit of a labour of love for me but uh, that's where to go the poetry is not appalling about the poetry the poetry is beautiful and it'll make you cry it really will in a good way i think you and i denise are going to be on uh, we're lined up at, sometime at christmas we're doing another audio annuals podcast. we are yes my goodness. Hold on to your hats. Those ones are always... Uh... <laughs> I'm just going to call them a ride and just leave that hanging uncomfortably in the air. Mm. Um, and you can find me on Twitter at hairofthehound underscore. Thanks very much for joining us. You may find us, this particular gang, running uh, hoax tours uh, around uh, Loch Ness. Um, you know, maybe getting to some deep fakes, maybe some nude ouds. <laughs> well, it's, it's the Loch Ness Monster, the original deep fake. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. He's off. We're going to lock Pete in a trunk. Um, (laughs) But for now, we will leave us on Trail of the Yeti. So from this paranormal gang, goodbye. 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 Goodbye.